We're so glad that you're with us this morning. I'm Pastor Tony, pastor for youth here at Maranatha. And uh, let me highlight a few announcements and always just encourage you to check the bulletin as well for things that uh, maybe don't get verbally announced. Uh, or if you come early enough, you get to see some of the announcements on the slides as well. But uh, we do have our offering collection there on the way out. Uh, so if, as a part of our worship, we encourage you to participate in that. Uh, we have our men's kayaking on the Red Cedar River on July 22nd. So that's coming up soon. That's from 1 to 5 p.m. You can sign up online through our website or uh, at the welcome desk as well. And then we have uh, a, a new uh, Bible study that Mary Holmes is starting uh, called um, The Names of God, and it's a K. Arthur study. Uh, there's information in the bulletin about that. Uh, if you flip your bulletin over on the back side, you can see uh, they meet on Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. from 9 to 11 a.m. right here in the fellowship hall. Um, so you can sign up at the welcome desk to let Mary know that you're coming and that you need a book for that study that has just gotten started, uh, I think just this past week, I think maybe they got started. So jump right into that if you are able. We have our annual business meeting coming up in a couple weeks. That's in two weeks from today on July 23rd. That's at 1 p.m. Um, if you are a member, we'd obviously certainly encourage you to come. Uh, but if, even if you're not a member, you're welcome to attend that. Members are able to vote um, on the different things that are on the agenda, typically the uh, voting on our budget for the next fiscal year, um, as well as usually a couple other things. So we have a couple elder uh, nominees, and as a couple elders are finishing terms, and some new elders will be uh, hopefully affirmed onto the elder board. And then also we have that amendment that we had sent out a while back uh, that we'll be voting on. So um, please uh, join us for that if you are able at the annual business meeting. And yeah, just a, a reminder again, check out the bulletin. Carmen works really hard during the week to try and get everything put in there as best as she can. And uh, even though we don't highlight everything verbally. But uh, the last announcement is going to be um, Operation Christmas Child, Christmas in July. So we have a little video uh, this morning about that. And then Joan Niedermeyer is going to come up and share a little more about that before Pastor Aaron comes to preach the word this morning. So check out the video. shoebox is open they're overjoyed you can see them shouting jumping oh, look at how much they are excited this is the first time those children are receiving the shoe boxes they are so happy every box is important because every box is an opportunity to tell a child about god's love about his son jesus christ if you get the heart of the child you will reach the heart of the parents, you will reach the heart of the family, and then you will touch the community. That gift box is the beginning into their hearts. Isn't it incredible how these gifts touch the lives of these children? Every year we see tens of thousands of children discipled, and we couldn't do this without you, so thank you for packing the boxes, thank you for praying for these children around the world. God bless you, and keep packing those boxes. Good morning. Are you ready for Christmas? Um, did you know that there are children who experience Christmas for the first time each day throughout the year? Operation Christmas Child, their outreach events are around the world daily. So I think we need to celebrate Christmas more than once a year too. The gift of Jesus is the greatest gift. We shared the message two weeks ago at VBS 
with children in our local community. With Operation Christmas Child, we can reach children around the world with a simple shoebox and the gift of Jesus. Um, with the help of Pastor Aaron and the youth ministry, they are hosting this Christmas in July for us. It's a picnic for all of you to come and join us. We'll have hamburgers and hot dogs, ice cream, and games for everyone. Um, we're asking for a donation of $10 per family, which helps pay for the shipping of the shoeboxes. Uh, last year, we packed 750 shoeboxes. And, and last, yeah, thank you. Thank you to everyone for that. And um, last year, the, our shoeboxes went to Zambia. And we received messages from six or seven families. And two of the families responded on Easter Sunday, which was pretty awesome to get a message. Um, I have stories about the recipients, if you're interested. Um, I have a, we have a table in the fellowship hall. We're looking for some volunteers to help with the games and grilling the burgers, so sign up. And this year we also have a go tree. It's called Gospel Opportunity. You can take an ornament from the tree. It gives you some suggested items to purchase. And when you return them on the 16th, you will have a chance to win some great door prizes. I thank you and I hope you can all join us. Thank you, Joan. Uh, it's a great um, ministry and a great opportunity, and I'm very thankful to Joan for heading that up for us and uh, even for uh, her involvement year-round. Uh, I've heard horror stories from Steve that their basement is full of Operation Christmas Child stuff year-round. Uh, so we're very thankful to her and her hard work um, in that and the many of you that will volunteer. Well, this morning... Um, Pastor Cody is at Life Fest, and Pastor Tony is heading out after service this morning to uh, go share uh, at a camp in Minnesota, so you're stuck with me again. So uh, if you want to leave now, I won't be offended. Um, but this morning we're going to be in uh, the second chapter of Philippians, going through uh, verses 1 through 11 again, so turn there if you would to join us. Uh, I will encourage you this morning... We will be going through many different sections of Scripture uh, to see uh, Paul's points here kind of fleshed out in different ways in the life of Christ or in uh, the prophets or even into Revelation. So I encourage you to keep your finger uh, in Philippians, but we'll, we will be turning to many different passages this morning. In 1986, uh, there was a basketball playoff game that featured the Boston Celtics and the Chicago Bulls. Now, many of you who are, are either basketball fans or if you were alive during the 80s know that the Boston Celtics in, 19, in the 1980s were a force to be reckoned with. They had Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish, Danny Ainge, many different great players. And Larry Bird actually was the reigning MVP at the time, the most valuable player voted on by the league. And they won the series, they won the game, the Bulls didn't even win a game, but in one of the games, something happened that shocked uh, the, the Boston Celtics, who were considered to be the greatest team at the time. 
uh, a player for the Chicago Bulls wearing number 23 decided that he would score 63 points in an effort to try and get his team to win a record that stands to this day for scoring in the playoffs. You might have heard of this guy. His name is Michael Jordan. Everybody heard of Michael Jordan? After the game, this is what Larry Bird said. Again, reigning MVP, considered to be the greatest player by the league, said this. He said, I don't think anyone was capable of doing what Michael Jordan did to us today. He is the most exciting, awesome player in the game today. And I think it's just God disguised as Michael Jordan. Now, as humorous as that is... When God came as a man, not as Michael Jordan, but 2,000 years ago, I would argue strongly that he was not in disguise. He came as a baby, lived a perfect life, and died and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. But I do not think in any way that God was in disguise when he came as the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, there's one thing I uh, think that we often lack w within Protestantism that the that, uh, Catholics do, and that is um, reciting uh, creeds or different things. And so, uh, actually, this morning, uh, I would like us to read together the Evangelical Free Church statement on Jesus Christ. So if I could have that on the screen, if we could stand and uh, say this together, please. All right. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you for that. These are just some of the truths that we hold dearly when we talk about the Son of God, God the Son. And this morning, I want to take just a, just a few moments to talk about the reality of God the Son. In Philippians, Paul does a great job of outlining that we, uh, his point that we are to be Christ imitators. We are supposed to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, as Pastor Cody talked about. We're actually going to be going through this section two, uh, in, in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, three different times. Pastor Cody's going to go over it again next week, but with different emphasis as we go through it. So join me in Philippians 2 if you would, starting with verse 1. If you have any encouragement from, the, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, this morning, uh, often Pastor Cody uh, puts a lot of stuff on the screen. Uh, there will not be anything for you on the screen this morning. I'm going to ask you to dig into the text with us. Uh, there were some handouts at the table in the back. Pick one of those up if you didn't after service. And please follow along because we're going to be going through uh, kind of a biblical theology or a Christology, studying the person, not just of Jesus Christ, but of God the Son and the implications of the reality of who he is. So let's begin this morning. We're going to skip down to verse 6. When it, and and this, is, this line is the paramount about who Jesus Christ is, who God the Son is. That first line says, being in very nature God. Not being like God. Not being a, a God, a different God is our uh, as the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, but being God. This is the paramount of who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God is. Not like God, but God. And we see this outlined for us in the opening words of John. So keep your finger in Philippians and turn with me to John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, outlines perfectly who the Son of God is, and we'll get to the implications of that reality in a minute. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. In the beginning was the Word. Again, John does a great job here of going back to the book of Genesis in, with his words, in the beginning. This is the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That's what he's about to outline. Just because God the Son came at this time as a man does not mean he started here, but has always existed eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's the reality of who Jesus is. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then it gets very interesting. Our theology gets a little interesting, because up until this point, if you read the creation account, it's very, very hard to pinpoint without going into the New Testament that the Trinity is working. But John, through the power of the Holy Spirit, reveals for us what exactly God the Son was doing. Through him all things were made. God the Son, at the beginning of time, created the universe. He took time each day to create the universe. With the, with the Father and with the Spirit, created the universe. He, has always he was in the beginning with God, implying that even before the beginning of time, God the Son was there. And I love this next part. In him was life, 
And that life was the light of man. Again, going back to Genesis here in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness does not, cannot understand it. What was the first thing God created again? Light. Before that, what was there? Darkness, right? The light always wins. The light always wins. That's John's main theme of his, of his book and going into 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, talking about Jesus as the light. The darkness cannot, it, it, the darkness cannot uh, compress it. It cannot deter it in any way. You can go into a dark room with just an itty-bitty candle and all of a sudden be able to see many, many things. So what are the implications of God the Son being God? Well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, where Jesus gets some visitors after he is born. We don't know exactly when these men visited. We believe it to be about when Jesus was most likely about two years old, but there's something there that's very, very important for us to understand that somehow the Magi understood, and even King Herod somehow understood. In verses 9 through 11, actually, let's go up a little bit to verse 8. And Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the child, or when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and they worshiped him. Had the man Jesus Christ done anything yet other than being God, did he do anything for you and for me? He came as a man, they worship him because they understand he is the king. Elsewhere in scripture, whether it's an angel or different things, when people try to bow down to other things besides God, God or one of his agents steps in and goes, no, 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 you don't worship anything but me. Remember Mordecai in, in the book of Esther? Haman wants him to bow down to him, and Mordecai says, no, I, I bow before no one besides my God and my king. Again, proving the deity of Jesus Christ and who he is. He deserves our worship, and he deserved our worship before he ever did anything besides just being God. All that other stuff is a, even more reason to worship him. Just the fact that he is God. Not like God, but God. Hope, hopefully you kept your finger there in uh, Philippians 2. We'll turn back there and go on to the next line. In Philippians 2, who being in very nature God, we know that God the Son is God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now this is a verse that is often used uh, by uh, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses to say that Jesus Christ, they, they say he, he, ha he is a God, but he's a lesser God than God the Father. But that's not what this line is saying at all. It's saying when Jesus came, when God the Son came as a man, he showed us how to perfectly be dependent on the Father. And it, it continues on that he, that he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Remember when Jesus is on the cross and they're mocking him saying, hey, if you're really God, if you're really the Son of God, call down legions of angels. And Jesus is like, well, I could do that, but that's not what I'm supposed to do right now. 
that's not the will of the Father. It's very important. We don't like the word submission, do we? It's kind of a nasty word. But within Christianity, it's a requirement for you and me. I'm going to say that again. Submission is a requirement for you and me. But submission does not mean, in this case, submission to the will of the Father does not mean inferiority. Just like in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when God creates man and woman, does he ever, he says that Eve is supposed to submit to Adam, but does he ever say that Eve is lesser? No, that's never communicated once, but he gives them specific jobs and roles, just like the Trinity has jobs and roles. Jesus Christ submitted to the will of the Father, showing us how to do it perfectly. But it does not mean that he is inferior to God the Father. His submission was perfect. Let's turn quickly to John uh, chapter 6, if you would. John chapter 6, verse 35. We'll see how this plays out a little bit. A little bit. This is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, and then he's walked on the water, and then the disciples want to know exactly what the miracle was just about. Why, did he, why is he doing what he's doing? And he, they, um, in, in certain gospel accounts, they, they uh, come and worship uh, Jesus after walking on the water, and, and some, they don't, that's not there. But the bread of life dialogue here is so, so important. In chapter 6, verse 35, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise them up on the last day. The perfect plan to save humanity relied on the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why in the world would God the Father, if he was superior to God the Son, give him these responsibilities? It makes no sense. For Jesus to receive worship, it makes no sense. If he's a lesser deity, he isn't. He is God. He is equal with the Father. But he showed us what it meant to be human in that we are not to consider ourselves in any way equal to God the Father. He is the bread of life. He is the answer. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. What are the implications of that? Submission is a requirement of the Christian life. We don't like that word. I said it earlier. We don't like that word submission. It's a nasty word. But submission, what submission does is say, you know what? Sometimes I don't understand this right now, but it's what God is calling me to. Sometimes I'm going to get a little uncomfortable or a lot uncomfortable, really inconvenienced, but it's what God is calling me to. Submission, perfect submission, as Jesus showed to God the Father, is what we're called to. Obviously, we could not do that, so Jesus did it for us and showed us how to do it. If you don't believe me, go back to Philippians uh, chapters, the 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 precursor for what all the theology that Paul is outlining. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Oh yeah, just like Jesus did. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, being filled with tenderness and compassion. That's what we're called to. That's what submission in the Christian life is, is doing what God wants, not what we want. It's submitting to the spirit and not to the flesh. That's the ever-going battle that we have on this side of eternity. Submission is a requirement of our Christian life. Continuing on there in Philippians, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. This is what the book of Mark is all about. It's about Jesus, our suffering servant. We just went through the book of Mark, and it was great to examine that and see how Jesus, in his messiahship, but also his servanthood, and what that meant for you and for me. In Mark 10, 45, outlines the whole book, and we'll continue on if you want to turn there. Mark 10, 45, Jesus is uh, doing some teaching. He, has, he predicts his death. And then he makes a little trip to Jericho. But if we read the verse before, we can see his perfect servanthood. Mark ten forty five through 52. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we continue on and learn about a blind man. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I love that question that Jesus asked. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? That is servanthood. That is serving the other person fully. When uh, I've done just a very little amount of marriage counseling, but this is one of the things I always go to. It says, you know what? Every morning, this is what I want you to ask your spouse, all right? What do you want me to do for you today? What do you want me to do for you? Servanthood is what makes marriages work. Marriage without servanthood doesn't work, and it's going both ways. It doesn't work, does it, Rick? If you, if you, if you aren't serving your wife, how long is that going to last? If you're not serving your husband well, and that, that doesn't mean that one is lesser than the other. That's just taking time, just a few moments a day, to make sure that they know you love them. And that's what Jesus did. It's, it's interesting. He asked, what do you want me to do for you? And that's a great question. Obviously, he wanted to see, but the question that God and, and Jesus and the Spirit, I think, when, when they were all making this, this plan of redemption, he didn't ask, <laughs> I don't think they asked each other, what do they want? They asked each other, what do they need? 
What do they need? What does humanity need? Because if we would have gotten what we wanted, we would have gotten a great ruler to overthrow the Romans, right? All this other junk that comes with it. We would have gotten political power and we would have mighty armies and all that, all that stuff's coming later. But first we had to deal with the real problem, which was our sin. And Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father asked themselves, what do they need? And he asked here, what do you want me to do for you? Taking the very nature of a servant. Again, along with submission, servanthood is demanded of Christ's followers. It's not an option, guys. We don't get to choose if we want to submit or if we want to be a servant. They're requirements for us. They're hard choices to make. Every day, there's some days I wake up and I'm like, I'm not really feeling it. (laughs) Not really feeling it. But that's when I base it on myself and how I'm feeling that day, not what Christ has called me to. Because even in, even in the garden, we see Jesus struggle. Remember when he's dealing with what God, what the Father has asked him to do, and he says, you know what, if this, if this cup can pass, maybe we'll do that. And the answer is, it's like, you know what? And, God, and Jesus says, you know what? We're going to do it. We're going to do it. They, there's never at a point of contention with God the Father. He submits perfectly. He serves us perfectly through that. Servanthood is demanded of Christ's followers. Continuing on there in Philippians, this one is very interesting. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. Now, if we have a poor theology, we could understand this to be that God, since Jesus is the Son of God, he was created here at the virgin conception. Well, The man of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through Mary, was created at the virgin conception. But the Son of God, we just read, goes all the way back to eternity past. Being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. But that's very important for you and for me. And Isaiah actually gets into this. If you turn to the book of Isaiah in your Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and also chapter 9 gives us some great theological insights into who Jesus will be and who Jesus is. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, it says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to the son, and you will call him Emmanuel. And we know Emmanuel means... God with us, not a God with us, not someone who's like God with us. No, it's God with us as a man. And Isaiah, it fleshes it out a little bit more, and if probably just turn your page there to Isaiah 9, 6. He outlines some of the things that will happen in 9, 6. For just those first two lines there are great. For us, a child is born. Yes, a child will be born. But then notice the next line. To us, a son is given. A son is given, implying that this son pre-exists this birth. Yes, the child will be born, but the son will be given. From eternity past, there's always been the Trinity, but now God the Father is going to send his son as a man. And what's the reality 
of that. A child is born, a son is given. He didn't start here, but because he came as a man, he can be our perfect priest and king. We just learned from blind Bartimaeus that Jesus came from the line of David, which is of the tribe of Judah. But Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, so he, he couldn't be a priest, right? The, the, the Levites were the priests. Well, if we jump ahead, turn to Hebrews, if you would, chapter 5, we can learn where Jesus gets the authority to be the priest. He's from the line of David, yes, but where does he get the authority to be a priest? In Hebrews chapter 5, verses uh, 5 through 10, it says this, So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are, my son, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions and loud cries and tears to the ones who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. When was the last time we heard of this guy, Melchizedek? Bonus points. Some of you are in my Genesis class. You should know this. Abraham. How many times is Melchizedek mentioned? One time. He gets one time in the Old Testament. But we learn from this section that Melchizedek is a priest and a king. And even though he's outside of what the story of Scripture is telling us, he is a priest and a king that serves Yahweh. He serves God. And, and Abraham comes to him, and, and they have a little deal worked out. But the priest-king role from the order of Melchizedek, this is one of the reasons that the Pharisees get so mad at Jesus because Jesus seems to do a little bit whatever he wants with the law because he understands the law perfectly and he also has the power to change the law as the perfect priest king. That's why he heals people on the Sabbath because they're not understanding what the Sabbath is for. That's why he does what he does in such a different way from what the priests are doing because he perfectly understands it as our priest and our king and perfectly fulfilling the law. He is our perfect priest king. Continuing on in Philippians chapter 2, it says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point to death, even death on a cross. But why did he do this? Why did he suffer in this way? Why did he die the way that he died? Because he did it because we deserved it. He took it on himself. Again, if we go back to Isaiah chapter 53, we learn and get a greater theology of who this Jesus Christ is and how he will die. In Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, it says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our iniquities. He became sin, who knew no sin, that we 
might become his righteousness. That we might have righteousness, not based on anything that we could ever do. Christ took on himself this punishment, took on the very wrath of God so that we could be with him forever, so that there would be redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The death that we deserve, and the implications of that is that we, we now have a perfect propitiation. We have a perfect propitiation. I don't know if you've noticed, but when we come to church on Sundays, we don't sacrifice a whole lot of animals, do we? Why don't we do that anymore? Because the perfect lamb was slain. We understand that through progressive revelation that Jesus Christ is that perfect lamb that was slain to take on the sins of the world, lived a perfect life, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died, rose again, and is now ascended at the right hand of God the Father, advocating for you and for me. He's our perfect propitiation. He paid for our transgressions in full. Not part of the way, not a little bit of the way. There's no need for sacrifices. There's no need for a temple. There's no need even for the veil that was in the temple for the Holy of Holies because of what he did for you and for me. He restored us back to a right relationship with God the Father. A perfect propitiation. Now we're actually going to get into something... uh, a little bit what's happening now and a little bit what's happening later, which is called eschatology. If we go to Philippians chapter 2, it says this, closing up in that section there. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and the earth below, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is King, and he will reign forever. I'm going to say that again because that was the part where you guys say amen, okay? Jesus Christ is king and he will reign forever. Come on. (laughs) He will reign forever. Now there's a certain way he is going to do that. He's currently advocating. It's rightfully his role, but one day he's going to come back for you and for me and there's going to be a a whole lot of other junk that happens then he's going to bring in a millennial kingdom and we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. How cool is that? That we get to reign alongside Jesus Christ for a thousand years. And then he's going to give the keys to the kingdom back to God the Father, and we're going to have a party forever, being with Jesus Christ forever and ever. Our temporary sufferings on this earth, we got probably 80, 90 years, some of us a little more than that. That's a very temporary life sentence when you think about the grand scheme of eternity. But yet we're so inconvenienced to do things during our time here on earth. Jesus Christ is king and will reign forever. We get into that in the Revelation of John. If you turn to Revelation chapter 5 with me, this is a great book. It's very, uh, in some ways, very hard to understand if we do not read other books of the Bible with it, if we don't understand what Paul's talking about in in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and the book of Daniel and some other things that can get kind of jumbled 
together in our heads. But in, in chapter 5, it outlines what is going to happen. Revelation chapter 5, John is having a, a vision of what is going on. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open it or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp. They were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard a voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands upon ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever Amen. thank you <laughs> We open up this section, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Yes, he is the king, but then we continue on in seeing how he is also the lamb. Worthy are you to open the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. Jesus Christ purchased you and me so that we could be with him forever and reign with him forever. So what are the implications of getting to reign with Christ? In closing, let's go to 2 Timothy, if you would turn there, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul outlines for us what our calling is and what we are meant to do in the meantime until we get to reigning with Christ until he comes back for you and for me and we meet him in the air. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are fatherless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. If we died with him, we also live with him. Hallelujah. But there are some things that we need to do until he gets here. Notice that next statement, if we endure. If we endure. Now this is not saying that we have to do this in order to be 
saved. It's saying that since we are saved, this is what we do. If we endure. So what does enduring mean for you and for me? It means in this short span that we call life, we make it a priority to worship Jesus Christ. We make it a priority to be part of the body of Christ. We make it a priority to teach our children about Jesus Christ. We make it a priority to have outreach into our community. We make it a priority to be a volunteer in Awana or Sunday school or worship team or to lead a Bible study. Those things are the priority. And we have failed, I think, to understand that well. That's the priority. That's one of the reasons that we as pastors and elders asked parents to have kids in with us during the service time because we want you, we want to equip you. I understand it's really, really hard. Not everyone has a perfect son like I do. <laughs> I understand it's, it, it, some Sundays, it, it's really hard as a parent. I understand that. Please trust me, I understand that. But what you are doing by sitting with them in a pew and teaching them is invaluable. Because you're talking to a kid, a kid is talking right now to you that had to sit through two services every Sunday, plus Sunday school. And I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That is the greatest gift my parents ever gave me, is to show me that I belong Jesus Christ, and they did that by having me in the pew next to them. Because the church, the kids of today are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church right now. I understand it's hard. I do, trust me. But we live in an age, and I'm telling you this, parents, I want you to be fully engaged during a sermon, but sometimes it means you have to watch the sermon the next day or that afternoon. And I understand that. And I understand that's not maybe what you want to do, but we are not always called to what we want to do. That's why I urge you parents, I understand it's hard. I understand that. I understand that some Sundays it doesn't seem like you're making any headway. But what you are teaching your children by having them in with you during a worship service to show them how the body of Christ worships together is invaluable. And if you wait to do it until they're 18, it's probably not going to happen. They're not going to know what to do. When kids, that's why I, I think that we're losing so many teenagers and kids as they go off to college. They're not used to this setting. How fair is it to a teenager to put them in just in a Sunday school or to, or to you go your way, I go my way all Sunday morning and then we meet back together? How much more valuable is it? Because guess what? I'm the children's pastor here. I'm not the primary disciple maker of your children. That lies on Katie and Jordan. That lies on Jake and Aaron. That lies on Becca and Nathan. That lies on parents. And that is what we have tried to accomplish. And that's why I'm asking parents specifically during this time, if we continue on or not, endure because it's going to be worth it. That's what we are called to do endure because one day he'll wipe every tear from our eyes there's not going to be any more sin we get to think about this we just had the fourth of july right anybody go to like a barbecue or something you guys probably had special food 
That's literally what heaven is. It's like a big barbecue and we're all there. We're all standing next to Jesus eating coleslaw, mashed potatoes, and ribs that we just pulled off the smoker. We're going to have a great feast and be with Jesus forever if we endure, if we run the race to completion and if we run it well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for doing all of the things to save us because we could not do them ourselves. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped while you were here on the earth. Thank you for making yourself nothing. Thank you for being made in the likeness of a man to save us. Thank you for humbling yourself even though you are not required to do so. Thank you for dying on the cross. And thank you that one day we get to reign with you forever to the glory of God the Father. Please help us to endure, God. It gets hard. It gets difficult. I wake up most mornings and don't want to do it. But I pray that you would be with us, that you'd give us some encouragement this week, and that we would run the race, not only for the prize, but to honor you and bring you glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.